Hello and welcome back to episode two of season two, Hawk Talk Podcast. I'm your host, John Hawkins. Today I'm going to have a guest who, I was going to say I'm going to have a chat with somebody who, well, technically speaking, I chat with you about 10 times a day. So Jody Riccelli, we work together over at Web Dev Studios. How's it going? Hi, John. Hello. I know. I'm super excited to get to chat with you more, though. Ten times a day is not enough. Not nearly enough. No, absolutely not. So, you know, I've I kind of have framed season two of the podcast as um, almost all of the talks that, like, over half of the people that I have lined up for this season are people that I work with. But what happens is, as we're talking, or like when we were hanging out at like, uh, you know, we went to WDS camp together, and mm-hmm. um, while we're there, you kind of start learning stuff about folks that is outside of what we do on a day-to-day basis, and I find that stuff kind of really interesting, and kind of digging into not only how you got to where you are in your in your, your business journey, but more than that, it's, you know, I work with some really freaking smart people that do some really cool shit and you are definitely one of those. So That's very nice. Thank you for hyping me up. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing about you that just I oh man, I am so interested in this because I'm always I'm fascinated by it. Mm-hmm. You run by the way you work you must work like 35 hours a day is what i figure that's my that's my guess but aside from your day job you also run a consulting and talent management company in the music industry mm-hmm. yeah so exponent agency is the name and mm-hmm. uh my husband who is chelly and i started the company in 2006 so it's 12 years now, which wow. I can't believe. Um, but it's always been like our baby. We've just, we both grew up around music and submersed ourselves in the music community in so mm-hmm. many ways that it was a natural transition for us to just, I mean, part of it, of course, it's a business. And so there is this, you want it to be successful and make money and do really awesome things with it. But I think for us, the other part of it was being able to give back to an artistic community mm-hmm. in such an artistic city that had given us so much. So it really is a labor of love and a passion project. Um, I would say more than, you know, it is our source of income, if you will. Right, right. I mean, obviously you have a full-time job during the day. Does your husband as well? He does, yep. Mm-hmm. So it's completely something you guys run after hours, weekends, etc. both of you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it's always kind of been set up that way. Mm-hmm. I, there was a time when we did it pretty much full time, but the music industry itself has changed. Yeah. So our place in the music industry has really shifted since we started Exponent way back when. Yes. Um, as the music industry started to change, we really needed to adjust, and it happened quick from like 2006 to 2009 there was a, a, the complete industry got turned on its head um, from streaming music. Yeah. Um, you know, even little things like MySpace going away, which if you think about it back in the early 2000s, MySpace was the predominantly the web source for so many musicians 
and artists. Mm -hmm. And then it just, it was like we woke up one day and it disappeared. Yeah. And everybody needed to find a new way to kind of communicate with their fans. Then streaming kicked in and then big brands started really, I use the word monopolize because I don't think that there's a better way to put that, Mm -hmm. started to really monopolize the music industry where you had people like 50 Cent starting a blog. You know, and then you had people like JC uh, doing 360 deals with artists. Like all these things changed and it happened really quickly. And so it wasn't the same music industry that I started in. Yeah. And I wasn't 100% sure it was the music industry I wanted to stay in either. Well, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you talked about like the the shift in the, in the industry, like the, like obviously streaming is just such a crazy thing. Yeah. So when you kind of first started, 2006, let's say, um, you've got a stable of artists, be it one or be it 50, whatever. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, but so you have a stable of artists. What was, what was their like main source of income at that point? Yeah, it's a great question because, so I live in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And so we set up home base here. I've been here since 99. So I've been here almost 20 years. And I grew up two hours outside of Philly. Hmm. Philadelphia, uh, if you know anything about the city, is very rich in musical history. I promise I have a point. Um, It's where a lot of DJs got their start. We have a music hall, uh, Walk of Fame, down Broad Street in Philadelphia. There's so much happened in Philadelphia that really contributed to the musical culture overall. One of those things was the hip hop scene in Philadelphia was, I mean, it's, listen, it's not New York, and I'm not going to try to compare it to New York in any sure. way, but what was happening in Philadelphia in the early 2000s and, and hip-hop uh, primarily was so important that I don't know if people really realize how that it influenced the music culture at the time. For instance, there's this one artist from Philadelphia. His name is Reed Dollars. He was one of the first artists to do start freestyling on YouTube when it just about started out. Hmm. So you have these kids who are 14, maybe 15 at the time, freestyling on YouTube, which at the time was a new medium. They were getting a million, two million hits on these videos. And there was no one around to say, this is how you monetize that. Mm. YouTube was really new. um, And doing things like that were a brand new concept. Meek Mill, who is obviously a a super famous artist from Philadelphia now, I mean, he was the same way. He was like battle rapping and freestyling Mm -hmm. in Philadelphia and different places. And he was on YouTube at the time. And I don't know that, that, so you have this, like this, we, we started so much in this culture, but these, these kids and they were kids were never given the knowledge or the tools on how to really make this a professional career. You had people like Jay-Z coming into Philadelphia, again, in the early 2000s, looking at groups from Philadelphia like State Property and, you know, signing them and wanting to sign them. And then, you know, you wouldn't hear from them necessarily. But a lot of what they call flow in hip hop, and I sound like the weirdest person in the world saying these things, but you know, how you rap or your style of rap, Uh if you listen to a lot of artists, it is, there is a trend to what Philadelphia created and what Philadelphia started. If you go back and you listen to Philadelphia Freeway, who just goes by Freeway now, who you may or may not have heard of him. He's probably one of the more popular rappers or MCs from Philadelphia. 
listen to the way that he raps and I promise you it will sound familiar when you listen to a lot of artists that came after him. Yeah. So Philadelphia like rooted itself really in the, in the hip hop culture. So you asked me like what would these artists were doing to like promote themselves, like to get their word, the word out there about yeah, them. Yeah. So there was MySpace, but there was also in the hip hop community, there was mixtapes, which were one of the most popular ways that you could get the word out about yourself. And literally it was 10 songs, uh, usually to already existing beats, sure. 10 to 12 songs, sometimes 20. And they would sell them on the street corner or you'd have people like selling them at like little stores in Philadelphia. Um, so mixtapes were one of the main sources because you could sell those for five, ten dollars a pop. And, you know, you can make at least back what you paid in studio time if you're doing it correctly. Right, right. What you paid to produce the CDs. So mixtapes were a huge thing. If you were going to be a hip hop artist in the mid 2000s, you had a mixtape. You had multiple mixtapes and you put them out often. Um, sometimes they were done by DJs. So like if a DJ put out a mixtape, he would get a variety of artists and they would all be you know, on this particular album. And that would get you recognition, especially if the huh. DJ was a big deal. So mixtapes were one way. Shows, um, so again, back in the day, I sound like I'm an old lady, but back <laughs> in the day, if you think about it, when you went out to a bar, right? You went to a bar because it played rock music yeah. or it played folk music or it played acoustic music. And you didn't necessarily go for the artist. Think about, again, we're talking... 12, 15 years ago, mm -hmm. you would go to the bar and you would be entertained and you would yeah. probably learn about new people. And that's how you got, you found out about new music. Right, right. It changed now. Now you have promoters who are responsible for bringing people into the door. They are paying a cover charge when they go into the door. And the promoters are usually promoting for one act, sometimes multiple acts, depending on how the bar has to set things up. So now when people are going out, they're going to see the act. They're not sticking around for the before and after, typically. Uh -huh. So they're not experiencing new music that way. So that changed dramatically. So now we have mixtapes that fell to the way wayside because of streaming. And there were some really smart people who built websites that were then streaming mixtapes. And they were doing really well for a while. So mixtapes went, you know, this culture of going out and listening and being introduced to new acts in live location, that started to fall by the wayside. I mentioned MySpace kind of jokingly, but also kind of serious because that was really one of the ways that most artists were online. And it took, if you remember, a couple of years for them to catch on to things like Twitter, MySpace, and Instagram, sure. which a source of communication with their audience. So that web presence had disappeared for like a short period of time too. Um, so all these traditional methods that we used to use for marketing artists or getting them paid, um, it all changed so quickly. And then when the only way to do it now successfully as an indie artist is to tour and make sure that your music is licensed and you're getting royalties. Uh -huh. So, you know, some of these groups like ASCAP and BMI, who you register your music through and who handle your royalties essentially they have also tightened up. And so now an artist, if they have a set together, and again, it has to be all your original music and you need to have writer's credits or you need to have your publishing in order to, for this to happen. But you can actually register your set and these venues will have to pay royalties when you perform, performance royalties, when you perform the song live okay. in the venue. So 
there's that. So royalties are a huge thing. Licensing deals became a bigger deal now because of video games and movies and commercials and things like that. Um, and, and touring. And if you're an artist, that's how you're making money. You're not making money selling a CD anymore online. The, right. the amount you get when you sell something on iTunes is so minimal. Oh yeah. I, it's even way less if you're streaming, if you stream an artist song on Spotify. I mean, it's like fractions of a penny we're talking about. Right. Right. Um, so I remember this one great story and I wish I could remember who the band was. I'm sure I could Google it and find it out, but they, you know, they were really trying to, to, to wrestle with this idea of streaming music being a source of income mm -hmm. and how you could actually make that happen. So they put up something like eight or 16 hours of dead air and they asked their fans to just go hit play. I remember um, that. And yes. just keep running. And they ended up making enough money to finance their tour through what they got on the streamings because their fans were so behind them. Yeah. That, that is also another way that, well, I don't actually know if that's necessarily a shift. We've always had indie artists. We've always had fans supporting indie artists. So that is still something that's super important, your fan base and what your fan base can do for you. Yeah. And, you know, let's not forget radio. I know that people think it's dead, but it is as relevant it is today as it was 10 years ago to get an artist broken. The harder thing now is getting somebody to play you for the first time yeah. on a radio station. Yeah. That wasn't the same thing again 10, 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but radio still, you know, still a huge method for an artist to get exposure. So we talked about Spotify a little bit and um, one thing that Spotify does, and I get it. I mean, I understand like the whole idea behind the amount bands are getting paid for for their uh streaming and i've seen this um i've seen a few different bands that actually have done blog posts about their you know hey just so you know this is what it costs us to tour and this is what you know and, um this is what it costs us to tour and this is how much we're getting paid for you know streaming you know here's yeah. here's our check for 136 dollars mm -hmm. basically and um you know, one of the other ways that I've seen bands doing it is through like um, Patreon, which I think is a really interesting concept, which is the, you pay me a subscription and I'll put out new content X amount of times per month or something yeah. like that. And I found that to be kind of really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, that, have you done any of that on your side? So um, I, I know people that have, we haven't done it personally with okay. because uh, again, you need, in order to make that work, you need to have your fan base to a certain place uh -huh. to really kickstart that into making it kind of like yeah. worth your while. Um, I struggle with these things a lot. And I, it's the same reason that I have a hard time with like um, GoFundMe and yeah. all these other tools out there. You know, I, I think it's great that when you can get your fan base to support you in your craft and what mm -hmm. you're doing and help you finance that art i do i'm not I'm, I'm i'm sure i'm not trying to take away from that experience from anyone because i've seen really amazing and beautiful things come out of all of that where i struggle with is it wasn't like that right like artists were able to create art for the enjoyment totally fans, absolutely and now they they can't have that same experience. Right. They have to create art to get paid 
right? And so it's, and you know, your fans have to work now, yeah. right? Like music was an escape. Art was meant to be an escape. No one really wants to work for that anymore. So there's this level of enjoyment that, that has been kind of removed. It's being replaced with other things. And I see that happening. But it's this concept of just being an artist for the sake of being able to provide to your fan base yeah. that is getting lost. And now you are working for your fan base. And that is a totally different experience. Oh, I can see that. Oh, that's interesting. That's a, that's a different view than I, I hadn't thought of it that way. I struggle with it because there's a lot of people that love it. And like I said, I've seen a lot of positive things happen from it. And I'm not, I don't want to say like, I sound like I'm knocking it. It's my own personal. Well, I have reconciled. There's, no, there's no right or wrong. Like there, like it. There's a right or wrong for each individual person. Like that may be a way that um, you know some people. I think about it like when you think about like the way that people produce things and like what it takes. Like if I wanted to be a writer, like mm -hmm. if I wanted to be a writer, I would literally need to force myself to sit down and have a scheduled time rather than being like, Oh, I'm a writer. I can just kind of write whenever the heck I want. No, no, right. no. That's just not the way that my brain works. Yeah. So I think as you have different types of artists who have a different mindset and the different, different goals, different, whatever, uh, you're going to have those different types of things that are going to fit better from person to person and group to group. For sure. And I've seen things like, uh, there are websites out there that will allow an artist to do an impromptu concert and somebody yeah. has to pay $2 or $5 yep. and see the online show. And that's kind of cool. Cause you feel inspired. You want to go live. You know, people are buying a ticket essentially to see mm -hmm. you. And I get it. I, I, you know, I'm behind that. I've paid for a few of those. And I, but I liken it to if you are a writer, that's a great example, and you have a nine to five job writing a column with, it has to be a certain number of words and there's a due date every week for that particular column, but what you really want to write is a novel. Uh -huh. But in order to fund the novel, you have to write that column, right? right? And right. that's how I kind of look at it. And, I, and maybe it's just my optimistic attitude about the whole industry, but I want art to be able to go back to art. Like right. I just, I miss those days of that, the freedom behind the art. Yeah, you know, finding new music also has been an interesting one. I, uh, for a while I was listening to, so when I'm listening to music during the day at work, I actually have to listen to something that I know really, really well, so that I can almost basically put it in the background and not be like, oh, what's this? And, and be interested in it, you know what I mean? So for me, I can't really listen to music, new music at work. But when I'm listening to new music, Spotify is almost scary in how well they get to know you. Yeah. And they had that thing where they were doing, and I'm sure it's still there. I just don't use it anymore. Um, but every Monday they would basically go, hey, based on what you listened to over recently, here's, here's a new playlist for you. Yeah. And they would kind of slot in, obviously, a bunch of old stuff that you're like, oh, my God, I love that song. Thanks, mm -hmm. Spotify. But then they would also slot in, like, three new bands where you're just like, mm -hmm. I've never heard of these guys, but I'm going to go check out their stuff right now. Mm -hmm. And I love that. I think that's, you know, I, again, thinking of these guys who are just trying like hell to build up that user base or fan base that could then potentially get them to that next level. Cause I mean, I think that's, that's always what it is, right? It's like just different levels. You're just trying to get to the next one yeah. to get to what you want and what you're comfortable with. 
not everybody wants to be Metallica and, you know, I, some people just want to be able to go and tour. Like, uh, there's a, there's a folk band that I saw play at a friend's house here in town mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean, they want to make enough money to live comfortably, mm-hmm. but at the same time, these are folks that sold everything to buy a truck and a trailer to tour around and play music. Like, yeah. And if that's what you're into, do that. Do all of that. Anytime I start working with an artist, that's like the first question I ask them. What kind of artist do you want to be? Do you want to sign to a major label? Do you want to be a touring indie artist? Yeah. Do you want to be a streaming artist? Like, pick it. You get, we got to get really specific right now because you can't be all of them. Yeah. So which one do you want to be? And I typically will not work with somebody who says that they want to get signed by a major label. Again, I'm not knocking the labels. Yeah. Um, they, you know, they have, they certainly have their place. It's, it's just not where I wanted to be. I've had those meetings. I've been into Atlantic Records with artists. I've sat down with the A&Rs before. I saw, I've had signed artists. Um, you know, we had some, somebody signed to Bad Boy for a while. So I've watched all that happen. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't want that corporate life, again, touching this beautiful art that was yeah. happening. Yeah, and it's, it is again even with the deals that are happening at these record companies I mean I have to talk to artists all the time you're getting $7,500,000 advances and you forget that every single penny of that advance needs to be paid back and even though you're signing a contract that says that you're going to do maybe three studio albums in seven years they can shelve you till year seven and you could just sit there and that happens more often than not, I mean, I, I have a story and I won't, you know, I'm not going to share the artist's name. He was sure. signed to a major label and he was smart and owned a hundred percent of his publishing. And that is very rare for an artist to go into a record deal and retain a hundred percent of their publishing when they sign with a, with a major. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seemed too good to be true. And it was too good to be true <laughs> because they signed him. And then there was no expiration date on that contract or there was, but it was a very confusing situation. And basically they just shelved him and had him write for other artists at the label in order to make some money. There was a, um, an article about Biggie Smalls. I was reading the one time and I'll never forget it. He had sold out like shows across the country and he was sitting in his hotel room eating McDonald's because he couldn't afford to get more, like anything better than that at the time. Hmm. And, th- and that's how you have to think about these contracts that yeah. you're signing and what they look like. You'll be selling at stadiums, but you'll be eating McDonald's for dinner because that's all you could afford. Wow. And so that's not the situation that everybody wants. Again, I'm talking in generalizations. There's a million exceptions to the Sure, world. of course. Um, but yeah, so, you know, for me, the artist that I want to work at wants to like, you know, like be an indie artist, work really hard, sell merchandise out of the trunk of their car, build their fan base organically, and then that fan base hold on to it forever. Yeah. You know, I read a contract two weeks ago that got sent to an, one of an artists that we work with that said that the the record label wanted to retain almost like a hundred percent of their social media while they were signed. Like, can you imagine, like, that's what you worked to build, your social right. media following. You're not handing that over to a <laughs> It's like your network, you know? So 
Um, and again, some of them are really great. There's labels out there like Duck Down doing amazing things for indie artists and really giving them a platform to shine. And I salute those labels that are doing things like that. They should, you know, it's those small labels that are still hungry. They're the ones that are really doing the magic. That's awesome. I mean, that's knowing that type of stuff and kind of going, you've been at this a long time. I mean, it's, it's not something that you just kind of have dove into and having that kind of uh, knowledge, but not only that, like, like, I know you, you know, we we're you want what's best for the artists. And, you know, I think that uh, for artists finding companies like yours that, um, that have that artist best interest in mind is like, that can be key. That can be, that can be key to the next decade of their life. You know, they, if they can get hooked up with uh, a group like yours or, and I'm sure there's others that are, that do the same thing, but having somebody to even just sit down and ask questions to, um, before they sign that contract, because they can just look at that seventy-five or hundred thousand dollar advance and go, "Hell yeah, look at this, mom! I made it." Yeah, well, you didn't quite make it there, you know. So I, I think that that's where you know Chelly and I kind of found our niche with Exponent because I was just sick of watching people be taken advantage of, and I knew I knew we weren't ever going to get rich off of this, and yeah. honestly, I don't even expect any of the artists we work with to get rich off of this right now, anyway. I believe in them all implicitly, but the idea is that I want to set them up for a lifetime of success, not just 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah. And so that's what we'll invest our time in. And when we started, we had a ton of artists and they've come and gone throughout the years. And right now we have hunkered down on, I would say probably the ones that we believe in the most, if you will, mm -hmm. ones that I do think will be doing very big things in the future. But here's the other key. If you're going to be an artist nowadays, you better think of multiple streams of income anytime you do something. So if you're performing, great. You should also be writing. You should also be licensing. You should also be making merchandise. You should, you know, do whatever it is that you can do. Um, monetize literally everything. Your YouTube channel, you know, sponsor posts on, on Twitter and Instagram if you have to. Whatever you need to do um, to make this your lifestyle but it has to be multiple streams. You're not going to just, Jay-Z's never going to come knocking at your door <laughs> and make things all better. It doesn't happen that way. It's a lot of hard work. And the harder you work now, the better chance you are of being okay in the long run. So my, my wife and I, we really like um, this style of music. It's called Red Dirt Country. And it's very much like a Southern rock, uh, Texas country, Tom Petty-ish. <laughs> Tom Petty with a slant more towards country. Okay. Um, so the thing is, not a lot of folks that I know <laughs> or that I run into have heard of most of the bands that we like. And that's okay. That doesn't mean that these guys aren't making a decent living doing what they're doing and, and enjoying it. But um, when you were talking about that multiple streams of income, it reminded me so much of we were at a concert um, we were seeing a band called cross Canadian ragweed. They've since broken up and whatever, but during the show, the guy, uh, you know, they finished the first song. He's like, okay, just a quick little bit of business here. Um, if you enjoyed the show at the end of the show, go up to the merch tent and you could buy one of these. And it was a rubber uh, bracelet mm -hmm. that uh, had a USB drive 
right yes. in it. Mm -hmm. They record the show, and then at the end of it, just straight out of the mixing board, mm -hmm. duplicate it a whole bunch of times. So you paid $18 to go to the show, and then mm -hmm. for $25 extra, you can take home that show mm -hmm. on, the, on a USB drive. And I mean, I was basically telling every single person I know, it's like, if you could do this, why wouldn't you? If I go, if I'm willing to go to a concert, mm -hmm. the ability to take that home with me, shit, I'm doing it every time. Yeah. Would you go, like, let's say U2, I don't know, but the band U2, if you could go to see U2, pay $100 for tickets, but also pay an additional 50 to take that night's concert home with you, you're doing it absolutely. So if you go and look, Metallica does this like nobody's business. Yeah. They have they have a streaming service and you can go and buy concerts and you can I think you can get CDs pressed and sent to you and for every show ever, blah, blah, blah. I've actually I, I should really look at this. My wife and my first date was actually to to go see Ozzy Osbourne with the opening band was Metallica. I should see if they have that date. That would be a That'd be kind oh, that'd of a cool so thing. Sweet. All right, so we're we've been at this a little while, but I kind of I need to kind of ask you how if you were just nothing but in the music industry, you and I probably never meet. So how did you make this transition from running a music business to being a uh, to running being a uh, client strategist? Yeah, I know. It's a weird transition. Um, it's actually funny how it happened. Right when MySpace was dying, mm -hmm. Chelly said, to, we were not married at the time. We were still dating. And he said to me, hey, you know, our artists don't have anything on the web anymore. We're going to have to figure out how to make websites for them. So we were like Googling and <laughs> looking for an easy way to make a website. And Chelly stumbled upon WordPress. I had never heard of it before. Mm -hmm. This was this had to be like beginning 06, maybe mid 06. Okay. Um, and it, you know, it wasn't, it was still very bloggish at the time, if I remember correctly. Definitely. Yeah, at that time. Anyway, the next morning I woke up and I came down and he had downloaded GIMP onto our computer. Okay. Open source graphic yeah. software. Oh, yeah. Oh, I um, use it. He had all this training videos and stuff like YouTube videos and documentation pulled up about WordPress. And he said, I found this. I think we can make something happen. Will you learn how to use this? And that's how I was introduced to WordPress. That's and awesome. I started making websites. They were so bad, like the worst. But I started making websites for the artists, you know, using GIMP to like make these graphics and whatever. Mm -hmm. And then the music industry took a shift. We had a really bad year. Chelly and I, uh, the music industry was changing. We were like losing artists. It was just like our rock bottom year. And yeah. it, it happens to everybody who's sure. in have a rock. We opened a store, uh, that was like selling music and t-shirts and sneakers and the store went under and like just a million things happened. And we were, and I was just fed up and I said, you know, that's it. I'm just going to go work again because this is too hard and I'm not enjoying it anymore. And I stumbled upon this opening for a sales position at a web development company called Yikes, which is here in Philadelphia, in Fishtown in Philadelphia. And so, I don't know why they hired me. Um, <laughs> I had no experience. I had sales experience mm -hmm. and I knew WordPress, but had never worked for an agency. 
Um, I was just very, very lucky to fall into that office that day. And so I started doing it and I was very torn for a long time. Did I, did I run away? Did I fail at this business? But I ended up liking that more. And so I had to trust the universe that the universe just pushed me in that direction because that was the, the route that I needed to go. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, and instead of looking at me failing at running exponent full time, it was like a calling to something else that could use all of these skills. Right. It was just, I was very lucky. I worked really hard and it worked out and I had a, an amazing time working at Yikes while I was there. And I, I think I was there five years and I learned a lot about WordPress and about the industry and about agencies in general. And then, you know, again, it's like you get pushed in, in directions and I kind of got pushed into web dev by accident almost. Yeah. And, you know, I interviewed um, and talked with Lisa, who was our COO and Brad, our CEO over the course of a couple of weeks and was lucky enough to get hired there. Again, I don't, I don't, I didn't really understand all the time what was happening. It was just, I felt like I was being guided in that direction. And then luckily enough, I, you know, I got hired at WebDev and I've been super happy. Uh, probably the happiest I've been in a very long time at this role. And I still struggled for a long time about, did I run away from exponent? But sometimes you just like other things better and that's okay. You know, I also think that, um, I mean, listening to your story and I, I've known, obviously I know parts of those, that, that story. I didn't know all of the details, but um, you know, what strikes me is that if you didn't get out when you were in that burnout phase and just not enjoying it, um, if you didn't get out and go do something else, Exponent probably doesn't exist today. You know what I mean? Like if you did try to stay and try to like grind it out as your only thing, it's very possible. Like two things could have happened. One, who knows? It could have turned around and you know, you'd be, uh, a multi-bazillionaire and whatever, but you know, to be more realistic, what most likely would have happened is you'd have maybe grounded out another year or two, mm -hmm. hating it, yeah, and being resentful and running away from it, and then but by going away and finding something else that you had a new passion for, mm -hmm. you could then kind of recharge your own energy, recharge your own batteries. And then now you, you have the opportunity to kind of put that, uh, put that into exponent and into these artists, these ones that you're kind of like cultivating mm -hmm. and they're the winners, right? Yeah. Because I remember, you know, there was a week, I'll never forget this week. Things just like all hit the fan at one time. It was 2009. Mm -hmm. It was the worst year. I remember Chelly and I, all we could afford was a jar of peanut butter and we ate it for a week. We had one fork and the two of us literally survived off of a jar of peanut butter for, it was over seven days to be quite honest. I would never admit to anyone that we were in that situation at the time, but that is really how we survived. Right at that time, our electric got cut off. We had to sleep in our coats. And then we got evicted from an apartment. This is a true story because we had nothing at this point. We got evicted. We were sleeping on the floor of the store on an air mattress. We had to take a free membership at a gym to shower. We had no, we had nothing. We were putting everything into the store, everything into artists. We were, it was like the, I was sleeping on a, st a store floor, on a, living off of peanut butter. And I 
Remember waking up one day just going, I don't want this life. I don't want this. I'm smart. I'm very smart. If I'm getting so much resistance in this direction, maybe I don't want it enough. Maybe this isn't the right direction. But I'll, I could work hard, but I want to bed. And that was what <laughs> I remember just thinking that one day. And so then, I, again, I got this job. And within maybe a month of working, I, I don't remember exactly how the, the time frame was, you know, I saw this apartment in Craigslist and I went to this guy and I said, listen, I don't have all the money to put down, you know, first month, last month security for this apartment, but I want it. Will you just give it to me? And I promise I will make good on all the money if you give me six months. And for some reason he said, yes, I don't know why. He's still <laughs> my landlord to this day. Oh, that's Although awesome. We're in another apartment that he kind of did for us. Mm -hmm. He's still my landlord. He just took a chance on us. We paid him cash. He didn't even have a sign of lease at the time. Like he waited till we had all the money. Then we got all the documents together and got it signed. And it was our first apartment. And we were like, actually it was our second apartment, but um, it was one that we like, we were paying for. We were okay. We finally were getting to a stable point again. And I felt so much better. It just, we had a place to live and we had food and, you know, I had this really awesome job and I was learning these new skills. And because of that, our artists benefited more. I was in a go. better mind frame. Chelly was in a better mind frame. And then Exponent started to go up again. So if it took me going back to work full time and finding a new passion and finding something that I'm good at, it, w it was worth that journey. Um, but now, you know, I look back, Chelly and I talk about that all the time. Like, you know, we ordered Grubhub three nights in the row. You know, it's like, you remember when we were eating peanut butter for a week? And I just know that I never want to go back there. Yeah. So if it means working 35 hours a day, I will do it to the day I die. Because that was not fun. <laughs> but I think the main takeaway in that is take care of yourself first. Mm -hmm. Keep your own batteries charged. And you've got more to give to the people around you. For sure. Everyone benefited from me saying enough is enough. Yeah. Everyone, everyone won. You know, in that first of that apartment that we got, that's where Chelly proposed. It was where our whole life like turned around. And I think about if I didn't wake up that one morning, I don't, sometimes I, you don't know what drives you, but it was literally something that was just like fix this you have a college degree you are a smart woman you can get things done yeah. what are you doing <laughs> <laughs> jody i really appreciate you being on the show today this has been a lot of fun this is another one of those conversations where uh yeah we we knocked off i think two of the bullet points of the 30 that we have on here <laughs> so i'm probably gonna just have to have you on the show again but yeah, part thank two. you so much <laughs> Uh, for being on the show. Uh, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, so you can go to um, exponentagency.com to learn more about Exponent. Don't judge the website, though. Those that are due, you know, those that can't teach or whatever. What's that expression? I have to fix it. That's the bottom line. Even though <laughs> mine's the last one to get done. But exponentagency.com. You can also read my blog at isabeth.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. We will be back again shortly with another episode of the Hawk Talk podcast. Until then.